0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Napiera. An in inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, completely different guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of St. death row and without a gang, without a group of people
1: around, he was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Aguero. And today we have an episode on Otis Tool, or Otis Tool, as I some people say, because he's kind of a hillbilly, so apparently I'm supposed to take on his dialect when saying his name. I'm not sure the rules there. I'm going to call him Otis, actually. Yeah, that sounds better on yeah. the if you're going to take on the whole persona of Otis Elwood 2, oh, you're going to get rotten teeth and start losing your hair and become a, basically a retard. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk about him and all his trials and tribulations. But first, Bill, we have a few listener-submitted questions. And if you guys want to send in questions for Bill to answer, because he's been on death row for several decades, we welcome that the Instagram and Facebook pages are death row diaries at death row diaries on Instagram and also on Facebook at death row diaries. However you, however you say that also check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash death row diaries where you will get exclusive content bonus episodes that are not otherwise available and stuff we can't really talk about. On the regular show so you will enjoy that laura from wales united kingdom she says she loves listening to the podcast and she has a question here about serial killers she says they strive for control but a lot of people think that a serial killer is born that way not that they develop into that so she says i understand the desire to take back control from a person. So Bill, why do you think serial killers who are born to kill seek out control? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a symptom of what they do. And by the way, thank you for the question. It's a very good question, Laura. Um, but serial killers are born or wired this way to kill
0: and to make, but that's part of what makes them going. What makes them serial killers is just not the fact that they kill because mass murderers kill hitmen kill. So a lot of guys in prison who killed three, four, five, six different people. But it's usually for under robbery circumstances or burglary. What makes them serial killers is the what makes them serial killers is the gratification, either sexual or psychological gratification they receive from the act of killing or the process of killing. In short, what they do is they sexualize They receive an arousal, they, they sexualize control, so it acts almost as if they're having sex. And you have to get your head wrapped around this to understand that you probably will not understand this because you're not wired to. It doesn't make any sense to you. But to them, they become almost adrenaline junkies to what they're doing. The control, the psychological sexualization of the act, it's what keeps them going. That's what they're looking for. That's what makes them serial killers. So when someone just kills a bunch of people, and I, and I always say, well, that's not a serial killer, people raise their eyebrows and, and they say, what are you, nuts? That's exactly what a serial killer is, but they're incorrect. It's how they think. It's the gratification and it is the sexualization of the control. That's what makes them a serial killer.
1: Elena from Northern Ireland she has a question for you, Bill. She was wondering how the other inmates react to you doing this podcast. Can they hear what you're doing? Do they care what you're doing? Are they aware of what you're doing? Oh,
0: well, another great question. Thank you so much for that question. A lot of none the guys in prison have access to podcasts or the Internet or anything like that. Do some of them know what I'm doing? Absolutely. I've been doing this for several years now. Um, I've talked about it. I wrote Escape Artist, my book, which talked about in some ways some of these serial killers. I've talked about some of the things I've learned in prison. Um, How do they respond? There's different – there's mixed responses. Some of them think it's pretty interesting. Other people don't like it because I am bringing um, – maybe I'm bringing a flashlight and a lens to an area – that most people don't know about. I'm sure it's the serial killers that I've spoken about or that I – really when I talk about with, in, in terms of serial killers, they don't like it because I'm bringing a dialogue about what's going on, a narrative that's going on that they don't want anybody to know about. They usually tell law enforcement law enforcement wants to know, and the case we're going to do today of Otis Poole and Henry Lucas is a perfect example of that. But what I bring is the truth. I bring, I believe, a service to the public to educate them on what these guys really do, to really protect those people who are in general public so they're aware of these guys' MOs, what they think, how they hunt, and what they're looking for. So I guess in short, to answer your question is, everybody has an opinion here, and I'm sure some guys don't like it, and other guys really don't like it. And at this point,
1: I really don't care. Bill, I want to try something with you real quick before we get to the episode, and I don't know what we'll call this segment. We can call it Inspector Nagara. I, I want to see if you can figure this out, this little true crime saga, if you can crack this little case, because I talked to a ton of police about this. I talked to detectives. I talked to really smart people about this as well, and they couldn't figure it out. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but real quick... The last two Saturdays in a row, at the exact same time, six in the morning, same day, just a week apart, someone tried to get into my house. They tried really aggressively to get in through the front door and it didn't work. And I kept asking people, why would they do this? Why would this guy do this? The same time, a weird time, six in the morning, where people are very likely to be home, the exact same time on the dot. Two weeks in a row. Why would that happen? Do you have any thoughts on it? Because I I figured it out. I cracked the case. But I didn't think of it. Huh.
0: Well, there's going to be two things. Either you have a really dumb serial killer trying to get in your house. Or it's a guy who comes home from work every day, probably plastered Confuses your house with somebody else's house, and he's coming home at the same time on Saturday because on Friday night, he drank all night, and he's trying to get in your house because he thinks his wife is in there, and then along the way, he figures out, huh, this may not be my house, and he just, you know, stumbles away, and then Matt runs downstairs thinking that someone's trying to get into
1: his, you know, to his home, and then he talks about it in the podcast the following week. How's that? That close to yours? that was one of my theories it turns out and this is a real aha moment which you know when when the answer's in front of your face and you go how did i not think of this well it turns out i confronted the guy in the parking lot of a store because i knew his license plate number he delivers papers so of course he's there every week at the same time because that's when he drops off the paper and he figures well as long as i'm there i'll try and rob someone or whatever did you go back in time into 1980s? They still delivered newspapers? I thought everything was on the internet. Yeah, my neighbor's pretty old. I don't think... He only had like four papers in his car, so I don't think he's making a real killing being a 60-year-old paper boy. Wow. Well,
0: either that, or he's a brilliant genius, and he's actually... That's his cover. But he's actually, you know... Um,
1: I don't know what he could be a criminal looking to get you out, and, and the is just a cover. What do you think? He's I think come it's. The puppy next time. Yeah, it's highly possible. Well, let's get to the episode when we come back. Hey, okay, so let's talk about Aldous Two. Uh, born in 1947, just to give the audience an idea, this happened uh, years ago. Now. He's got a lot to say about his upbringing, and it's very fantastical and uh, kind of frightening, but I don't know how much of it's true. So what do we know about his early years? Yeah, this
0: it's really hard to pinpoint who this guy really is because, first and foremost, he has a very low IQ. It's You're talking... 75, between 70 and 75, which is just borderline mental handicap, mentally retarded. And, you know, you can't talk about this guy as a single person because very early on, he is on his own, but he does hook up with another person, another serial killer, and they hunt together. You, know, you and I have spoken about uh, Larry Bittaker. And his partner, I mean the the uh, toolbox killers. These two guys, Otis Tool and Henry Lucas, are basically for the rest of history going to be regarded as as a combined pair. So, yeah, let's let's first talk about Otis because you know the guy, for all intended purposes, born in a terrible situation. I'm going to be the first to tell you that when I read this. I, a part of me just really felt horrible for what this guy went through as a very young boy. And because he had such a light, low IQ, there's no way that he had the tool set to deal with these kind of issues. And, and this is a perfect example of other experts in the field of serotonin say, aha, uh-huh, you see, horrible childhood, and he lashed out because of that. And although I agree partially that his upbringing had definitely impact on him the way that he responded which was to murder so many people was something he was born with to if you're mad at somebody Matt and because he stole your car and you have to get an argument and you kill that person you you can rationalize why that person did that but if the next morning he wakes up and he does the same thing in the same manner in another city to somebody he doesn't even know and then he does it the following week, the following month, and he keeps doing it to different people from different segments of different lives, that is no longer him dealing with a particular issue. It's something that's born inside of him that he has to do. And then, of course, as I mentioned, they sexualize it. They, uh, they receive gratification. So anyways, with this guy, his upbringing is horrible. So he was born in Jacksonville, Florida. His father's an alcoholic. His mother is very abusive emotionally to him. She dresses him as a little girl and she calls him by the name Susan. You know I mean? I can just imagine what that does to a boy. If he he doesn't want to dress that way but your own mother's doing it. The people he trusts are, are doing this to him. Uh, he's victim of child abuse, sexual child abuse. He's forced into incestuous relationships with family members. His grandmother's a Satan teaches him how to dig up graves for satanic rituals. Um, His own father, at the age of five years old, basically pimps him out to his own friends for their own sexual and deviant pleasures. This is a horrible situation. This this guy is um, responding to this by delinquent behavior. He immediately begins to run away from home and he seems to hate the homes he's with in because he begins to burn the houses as well and very early on matt um, you know as, as early as 10 years old he says that he knew that he was gay now whether that had to do with his father pimping him at the age of five to other male male friends um but by 12 years old he's involved in relationships with neighbors male neighbors and he drops out of school by the age of the ninth grade and he responds by just not being at home he's visiting gay bars where he becomes or understands that he needs to prostitute himself in order to eat and he turns into a male prostitute at a very early age Um, but he's also doing arsonist now what makes this guy different Matt is we've talked about these guys as serial killers begin to steal little things, petty theft. they, they torture animals, they they burn things, and I've explained that this is a symptom of who they are because they're feeling around in the dark. They're looking for who there really is, who they really are, what their identity is. He's a little bit different. He is what I refer to and all experts actually agree on this. He is a serial arsonist. And He admits that burning things to the ground that he hears music as it's it's being done and he becomes aroused so he has already at a very early age he's beginning to sexualize destroying things by fire and that's a very interesting twist because most serial killers that we have do burn things they torture animals but they usually lean towards torturing things or killing animals there is nothing that I could read about this guy that talked about any kind of torture of animals rather it was essentialization of arson
1: the arson thing confuses me because fire is cool like everyone loves fireworks especially the Mexican Americans who live in my neighborhood um, but <laughs> I mean, fire's awesome. You know, when I lived in Alaska, we used to build these huge bonfires at night and you can't help but look at the fire. It's fascinating the way the oxygen interacts with it. And, uh, you know, a fireplace remains a a solid amenity to have in your house and everyone likes fire. But why can't this guy just uh, build a a bonfire and drink some beers? Why is it burning things down? Well, I I believe...
0: Of destruction. Just to light a fire in a fire pit and throw some lighter fluid on isn't good enough. He likes to watch things burn. And this is what makes him a little bit different of an animal. He, very early on, is involved in sexual relationships that he's forced into. And along the way, his brain begins to really lock on to these actions. And I believe the serial arsonist that he is is kind of a a response to him dealing with being sexually abused because he talks about fire is, is sexualized for him. He gets aroused by watching it, but not just watching a fire. He has to destroy something. He likes to destroy buildings. He watches them burn to the ground, and he's usually very nearby while he's watching these buildings burn down. He doesn't simply walk away and hear about it the next day. He wants to watch the building burn, and that is part of the whole destruction thing. He's able to control, and this is another point. He's controlling a situation with fire that he can't really control, but what, where he gets the control is that he lights the fire, which gives him the control to start the destruction.
1: So he had a terrible roll of the dice. He's mentally slow, he has seizures, and he's gay at a time in the 1960s in Jacksonville. Are you kidding me? What was up with the mom yeah, dressing good. him up as a girl and calling him Susan? Is that like a gay punishment therapy type thing or what? You know what?
0: That mother... all the way but that a mother does that to her child at the age of five there's no way she knew that he had any tendencies to be gay at that age and even if she did to respond by putting him in a dress to really kill him to embarrass him is nothing short of just child abuse and then of course he had his father who pimps him out to his you know friends to have sex at the age of five this is a horrible situation this this boy, and I'm feeling right now for the boy that this was, not the man that he became, but it's just horrible. It, it's gut-wrenching, and look, I, I don't excuse what he did at all, but I have to feel for that child that he was at the age of five, and you think, my God, why would someone do this to a child? But, but we, we see later on in his life that he grows into be a monster, and it's um, it's a monster he was born to be. but.
1: You know, it's just, it's horrible what he did. Something that stuck out to me, I was wondering if you could answer this. I know you're not an anthropologist, but you're a little bit older than I am. He's age 17 in 1965 going to these gay bars. At a time when they were lynching gay people in the Deep South, I don't understand how it was really possible to have a gay bar in Jacksonville at this time.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't know a whole lot about gay bars, but I know that during the the 50s, 60s, 70s, even in San Francisco, which is the Bay Area, they had these clubs where men would go there to meet other men. And they were not really openly gay. They were just, and then they would hook up. I'm sure that even in Jacksonville, which is a very conservative South, <laughs> as South as you can get when it comes to, the, to, to conservative uh, viewpoints, I'm sure that they found ways around it, that they, um, that the community knew that, that that was a gay club, but that most people did not know. So that's my best guess. But, you know, you and I both know that during the 70s and 60s, there's a lot of, of prostitution going on. And whether you were a male prostitute that, were, that was gay or a female that was a sex worker, the trade did exist. And I'm sure that he found all the ways around it. Where no one knew what was going on, and he got away with it because obviously he was meeting men and he was taking them in his um, in, in a situation. Actually, at the age of fourteen, um, he kills his first person. It's a person that he met at a gay bar. That was one of his Johns, and um, he just ran along with his car and killed him. Now, this, of course, and especially with these two killers, Otis Tool and Henry Lucas. It's really hard, even law enforcement, after so many years, have a very difficult time uh, deciphering what is true and what's not true with these guys. So according to him, he
1: killed his first person at the age of 14. And it was a man who became abusive, a man who was going to be his John, and he ran him over in a car and killed him. Yeah, but we'll see later in the story that, We don't know if anything he's saying is true. We know he killed people, but we really don't know how many and when and where. Uh, So at this point in the story, he becomes kind of a rambling man and he kind of traverses the country. I don't know if he's drinking or doing drugs or prostituting himself, but he is he's a transient right for a while here. Yes, you're correct.
0: He you know, he seems to get in these cars and he has a Cadillac. I don't know what these serial killers and Cadillacs, but he has an old Cadillac. He later on he drives around. He is jumping from train to train. He's a transient. He's basically a hobo is what he is. And that's how he gets from place to place. But he's you know, between nineteen sixty six and, you know, nineteen seventy three, there's not a lot known about this guy. He is he's disappeared and he pops up. He disappears and he pops up. Um, he is uh, prostituting himself he has been in and out of juvenile facilities really bad situation but there's there's a pattern he seems to go he gets involved with something that really makes him want to leave and then he appears somewhere else and a good example of that is um, that he's going back and forth he's drifting around the southwest part of the United States to support himself through prostitution But then in 1974, he's suspected of killing a woman, which we'll
1: talk about when I get back. Hey, man. Can you ever really trust a hobo? I mean, during this time, it's been romanticized, ultimate freedom, the open road, Jack Kerouac, me and Bobby McGee, and I'm not judging people with their knapsacks who do this kind of thing. It's just that... When you romanticize it, you ignore what's often the reality, is that these people are pretty likely to try and kill your ass if you're not paying attention. Yeah, the
0: whole lifestyle it, it, its a very violent one. There's a lot of men and women in, in this lifestyle, and, and they're bums, come on, look, we can't romanticize a bum. You know, They have bad acne, bad teeth, bad hygiene, they don't shower, they're on these trains, a lot of bad stuff happens people on the trains, especially if you're a young man or a young woman. And yeah, it's not good, but this guy from the beginning, it looks like there was a reason for it. He liked moving around because it's hard to suspect somebody or really attach a label to somebody if you don't know who he is. And he seems to appear somewhere and disappear. And it really does happen in 1974 now this is one of the first killings they suspected of he suspected killing patricia webb was 24 years old in nebraska and the police are really they have him on the radar they've seen him around they think that he's done it um and my position is by 1974 he is already an established killer this is the first known killing but between 1966 and 1973 when very little is known about him because he's moving around from train to train, from city to city. I am willing to bet that he's already killing. Me. And with this guy, we don't know because even law enforcement, they just dropped the ball with this guy. Look, in the 70s, law enforcement did not share information. So it was almost by coincidence that he's crossing the country from train to train. And, of course, police departments not sharing information from one county to the next much less from one state to the next. I think that we've heard enough FBI agents and law enforcement say, look, we didn't have the means to track these guys because no one shared information. It was an ego, uh, it was an ego trip. And most law enforcement were basically in a pissing contest against each other saying so they wouldn't talk about it. So he's suspected of killing Patricia uh, Webb in Nebraska. And then suddenly he moves to a different place, Boulder, Colorado, within a month of being there, he is the prime suspect of killing a 31-year-old Elaine Holman. And, you know, he just disappears again. How police don't grab him and pull him again is beyond me, but he just disappears. And he pops up a year later in Jacksonville again. He's back in his hometown, um, and he's running around, who knows doing what, but by that, the following year, 1976, he marries a woman, okay? She's nearly 28 years older than her. She's 50 years old. And they're only married for three days before she
1: discovers that he's gay and leaves him. So That was confusing to me, this- too. I mean, I assume there was some kind of courting process. And frankly, if you've heard the guy talk, I would think you would know he was gay already. But... Uh, I don't get how you kind of didn't know and then it only took three days to figure it out. I mean, was he bringing guys home to the trailer or what? Yeah, you're wondering who
0: this woman was and what type of IQ she had because if you look at this guy, I mean, look, the bad piece is one thing, the balding hair, the bad hygiene, the talking like a hillbilly. I I don't know if that's the new fashion uh, uh, deal or the, the... the male model of the year deal, but this woman had to be pretty jacked up to want to marry this guy. And then where, what's the courting process? How long is she known for? And if she leaves him three days later that he he's gay, how does she discover that? That information isn't available, but we, we, we kind of see that this guy really, he is gay. Um, and he meets that same year this guy by the name of Henry Lee Lucas. And where did he meet him at? He meets him at a soup kitchen. So you can imagine how that conversation went between these two clowns. But they soon became intimate. They became lovers. Um, They move in with uh, Tool's mother, Otis Tool's mother. They live at her house. You can imagine what that house looks like, right? You have the mother who has been dressing her child as a woman, a child at five years old, as a little girl, He then moves in later on with his male lover, who is a serial killer, and her son is a serial killer, they're living under the same roof with this woman. I mean, I don't know about you, but that
1: just sounds way, way crazy, but that's exactly what happens. Well, in Jacksonville, that's just referred to as the middle class. (laughs) It's rare, but when you have these kind of vagrant people that are serial killers, what is it? Maybe one in 50, one in 100 have... A partner in this? I mean, how common is that? It's uncommon, but it's not unheard of, right? It's, it's not, un, it, it is uncommon, but it has
0: been heard of. As I mentioned, Bittaker, the toolbox killer, had a partner that they met at the um, California men's colony in prison at CMC here, um, and they actually began to plan their murders when they would get out Uh, how they would meet while they're out, and then they'd start hunting together. It isn't unheard of, but it's rare. Most serial killers hunt alone. Most serial killers are selfish, narcissistic, and they're paranoid, too. A lot of them are. And they do things alone because they want to experience the gratification alone. Most organized serial killers hunt alone. These two... Are completely unorganized there is no stocking period there's no they just kill some opportunity and they like doing it now as I mentioned they met they met in 1976 but we really don't hear a lot about these guys until around 1982 and the reason why you don't hear much is because they're not getting caught they're transients they're hobos as you mentioned but so we have to jump to 1982 and kind of work from the back to the front when it comes to these two guys because we don't know nothing about them till they actually get caught. And then is when all this stuff starts coming out of what they've done and there's kind of an aha moment that law enforcement realize, dear God,
1: we've just arrested the devil and his sidekick. Yeah, so tell us how this plays out. Okay, so...
0: In January 4th of 1982, this guy, Otis Tool, he barricades a 65 year old who he says is his lover, a guy named George uh, Sonnenberg. And he, he, has a, he lives in a boarding house where he's living, and Tool sets it on fire. The victim dies a week later of the injuries. And then in 1983, Tool is arrested for another arson, which he confesses to and he's sentenced to 20 years. He signs a confession about setting the fire that kills then George Sutterberg. Things get really weird because his partner in crime, Henry Lucas, also gets arrested in a separate case in a different state. And during that time, he begins to boast. About murder sprees that both he and Toole, as lovers, have done. And at first, Otis Toole denies involvement. Of course, when this guy Henry Lucas starts talking, police in that state contact the police where Otis is at and start talking about these guys are doing killings together, and this guy Henry's confessing to him. At first, Lucas is saying, Absolutely not. I don't know what this guy's talking about. But somewhere along the line, he begins to back up what Henry's story is all about. That they are working for a cult by the name, a cult leader of this special cult called the Hands of the Devil, which is just complete garbage. I mean, that's, I don't know how they came up with this stuff, but that is completely untrue. And long enforcement they have never been able to uh, really substantiate that the Hands of the Devil even exist, much less a cult leader has told these guys to go kill. I think it's them you know, making the story a little bit more plausible, and, and that's what that is. But soon, um, Otis is copied to these murders, and they're confessing to all these different murders. And then, this guy Henry turns on Toole, and actually, it's the reason he gets the death penalty. So he tells the police and law enforcement, before Tool goes to trial, he's actually a witness against them. that when he killed George Steinberg in that fire that he actually planned to kill him. That he was actually knew the guy wanted to kill him and that was the reason he killed him was to keep his mouth shut. So right away they stick a special circumstance against um, tools And they find him guilty based on uh, Henry Lee's uh, Lucas Henry Lee Lo- Lucas' testimony. So he goes to death row. And Henry Lucas is now began to understand that he's getting a lot of attention for talking. So during his time in prison, and everybody has to understand that both of these guys are now in jail, they are reflecting on what they've done, and that's how this case becomes a national and and basically a global interest in this case comes about because of what happens after these
1: guys get arrested, which starts now and, and, and goes on all the way till their death yeah it's just like a constant unraveling and back and forth game uh with especially with tools so can you talk about real quick the dynamic between these two guys uh when there are partners in this endeavor they're always Having sex with each other, I believe. But is Lucas also cursed with being mentally inferior? Um, is there a leader? Is there. Okay, so in, in terms of serial killers, there's usually a dominant and there's
0: usually a submissive one. Henry Lucas is not as mentally challenged as Tool. He seems to have his full deck with him. It's hard to tell which one was the dominant one during the crime spree and which one wasn't. It seems that there were two different brains working here that had one particular goal in mind and that was to kill. But both of them killed together and apart. That's what makes these guys a little different as well. I mentioned Bitterker before, the Hillside Stranglers. They killed... They're sprees together and they didn't kill usually apart with these two it seems that you don't have really a submissive and a dominant one although you could say point to lucas and say that he was probably more intelligent and maybe he manipulated but i don't think that's really true i believe that both both of these guys acted independently for one cause and that's what makes these guys very unique because they separate numerous times throughout their little career, their spree, and they kill in other states by themselves. So much so that Lucas admits to nearly 800 murders, where Toole says he killed 125.
1: Let me call back. Amen. All right, so you got to walk me through this here. It's very convoluted. If what they're saying is true, then we're approaching 800 murders. Is it mostly Tool that's. I don't know if he's spinning yarns or if they actually killed this many people, but um, yeah, can you kind of walk me through it here? Sure. No, absolutely. So obviously,
0: both these guys are in jail. And Tool, who was Otis Tool, has been convicted of the murder of George Stunnenberg by burning his building and they gave him a death penalty. He actually gets a second death penalty. For the strangulation murder of a 19-year-old Tallahassee woman, it's while he's on death row and he's going through an appeal process that Lucas is spinning this yarn. They're both spinning this yarn, and it isn't so far-fetched because yes, they're they're to killing nearly 800 plus people, but there are different journalists. One of them, in particular, is a guy named, by the name of Hugh um, Ainsworth or Angusworth he investigates this murder spree and that Lucas is confessing to. He works for the Dallas Times Herald and he is convinced that this is not true. That to do what Lucas said he did he would have to travel 11,000 miles in a 13 year old Ford station wagon in one month averaging 370 miles a day in order to commit the crime spree that the police were a tribute to him. He believed that police law enforcement were trying to clean up a lot of unsolved murders because they were unsolved. They wanted to close the book on them. And remember, back then, there was no DNA. So anybody that popped up and a person confessed to it, the best evidence they had back then was a confession from somebody. So Lucas is confessing or willing to confess to all these murders, and police are going along for the ride. They're very interested in this because they haven't even thought of DNA by that. They don't know anything about DNA. So they're closing these cases, and same thing with Tool. Along the way, these guys understand they become celebrities. Every law enforcement from California to New York are actually talking to these guys. And as soon as one of them says, well, look, I'll, t- I'll take you where the body's at. They're putting these guys in caravans and airplanes, flying them to the location, and they're walked out. They're going to mo- ho- staying in special jails with great food. They're driving down the road. I'm going to take you where the body's at. There's a the, the fried chicken right there. Hey, I really would like a couple chickens. I'd like to have a, a Pepsi. So they're beginning to become very aware that The attention's on them, and they have something that law enforcement wants. It's confessions. They want to close, and what does it cost them? A few hundred bucks to buy food, a motel, whatever, and they get out of prison to go around the country showing all these bodies are at. Most of the time, they don't find bodies, or they do find them because an officer was willing to give them information about where the body was at, and they would just say, oh yeah, I did that. So... A lot of people have come in and said, "Look, these guys made your stuff up in order to get better treatments." However, we have to then also be honest about that, Matt, because uh, by 1991, Tool has confessed to four more murders in Jacksonville, and they convict him and give him four life more sentences, or four more sentences to life in prison. And he actually committed those murders. These guys were bad guys. They actually killed a lot of people. Did they inflate the numbers? Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. But they did it in such a way you couldn't help
1: but want to know what these guys were willing to confess to. So a lot of attention that was brought onto this, these two guys is the murder of Adam Walsh. Now, his parents, his dad is John Walsh, who's the host of America's Most Wanted, or was maybe still is. And they were in Hollywood, Florida. They went to a Sears department store. This is a young boy. He was left alone just for a matter of a few minutes and he disappears. And this is a high profile case. It's every parent's worst nightmare. It's every parent's worst nightmare. Gets a lot of attention and tool ends up taking credit for this. Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) A bad situation for everybody involved. Of course, the parents, uh, both John Walsh and his wife, their child is abducted from these fears where the mom was going to buy a lamp and she let him stand a little place to play a, a video game. And according to the, the security guard, there was an argument between the boys and he shooed them out of the place. And of course, the older boys just walked off and little you know, John, uh, Adam Walsh was left outside. And he disappears. His mother frantically starts looking for him. They don't find him. And it turns into a national spotlight in 1981 about Adam Walsh. So Toole has been confessing to all these murders. And some of them are coming true in terms of that he actually did them and he can prove it. One of them is one of the I-10 murders um, of an 18-year-old young man named David Short. He was hitchhiking, and according to Tool, he shot him in the side of the head, and he had a bullet hole in the left side of his temple, which means that he was, Tool was driving the car, pointing the gun, and shot him. At this, around this same time, the, the bodies also are found of Ada Johnson, who was kidnapped outside the club in Tallahassee. So he's obviously in the area, 1980, and he's confessing these murders. One of them, as you mentioned, was the Adam Walsh case. And he has a lot of details. He says that Adam Walsh came willingly, that he gave him toys, and that it, it promised him candy, and the boy got into the car, which was a white Cadillac. We're we going to get on these Cadillacs, but he gets in the car. Now John Walsh is very astute guy. He obviously loves his child and I'm sure he told his child never get in a car with strangers no matter what they look like. Well, Tool, this guy Tool is not a good looking guy. He's got rotten teeth. He probably smells bad. Uh, His hygiene is horrible. I can't see a young boy who was a smart Parents obviously love him and talk to him and tell him about strangers that he just got into a car with. This guy. I'm going to dismiss that right now as being 100 percent false. I'm willing to bet that Anna Wallace was outside, didn't know how to get back in. The security guard shoot them out of the place. Security guard is a, a law enforcement looking character to him, and he decided to stay outside waiting for his mother to come out. And I think this monster just grabbed him and took him. That's what I believe happened. But Tool is confessing to it. He says that while he's in the car, Adam begins to cry. And, you know, I, I hate even talking about this. When I read this, I just twisted my stomach. Uh, he said that he, 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 he struck the child in the face and uh, lost his temper, began to hit him over and over. And at some point, he pulled over and he did the horrible act of of, of killing the child. And one of the worst things that he also, according to reports, and what they found later was he pulled out a a machete and decapitated Adam Walsh. Um, their father and mother were, didn't know what was going on, but two weeks after Adam Walsh disappeared, they found a, uh, they found a pit at a canal location and they may identified identify it to be the remains, at least just the head of Adam Walsh. They never found the body. Tool said that he burned it and that he was actually thinking about taking him home to become his adopted son. He came up with this wild story and at some point he recanted the story. He said that he made it up, he didn't do it, and he only said he did it to it was to be extradited back to Jacksonville. You know, there's a lot to be desired there on both sides of the spectrum right here. And I'm, I'm really actually having a hard time talking about this because it's very upsetting to me because they couldn't close this case completely. The guy confessed, and then he pretended. But police had in their possession that Cadillac, and I know that DNA was not something that was uh, available as a law enforcement tool in the early 1980s, but it was later. For them to have destroyed, they said they lost the freaking car. The freaking Cadillac disappeared, according to them. It was in police custody it disappeared. We all know, everybody listening knows that by 1994, they could have very easily matched, or a little bit further on, they could have easily matched that carpeting because he said he killed the child and decapitated him in the back seats. And according to police reports, that carpet was soaked in some type of blood. They could have very easily taken the sample and matched it to John Walsh's DNA and his wife and known whether it's true that this guy actually did it or not. It doesn't change the fact that the child was killed, but it would have closed the case completely. So a lot of people dropped the ball in this case, and for having so much media attention, I can't believe that
1: it disappeared. The evidence is gone. How is that possible? How do you lose evidence? I was under the impression that you put it in a room. It's pretty hard to break into a... Police station. Well, they actually, the car was taken and throw, they said it, they sent sent it to a junkyard.
0: It went from different owner to different owner and it just disappeared after a while. And the carpet was placed in police uh, custody and it disappeared. They lost it. So they, they dropped the ball there. Uh, it's just a horrible situation. And then years later, uh, when this guy, too, was on his deathbed, He, according to his niece, that he actually confessed to her that he had killed Adam Walsh. Now, there's a lot of different books that have been written about this. One of them is called Frustrated Witness. It's by a Miami Herald writer named Willis Morgan. And he says that this story is completely untrue, that the evidence actually points to Jeffrey Dahmer, who we know as the Milwaukee cannibal. So let's take a look at that, Matt. Why is that feasible? Well, first and foremost, Jeffrey Dahmer was living about a block and a half from where that Sears is at. Number two, he was working at a Subway sandwich or a a sub kind of place where they sell fast food, and they had a blue van for deliveries, and witnesses say that there was a blue van was seen at the scene of the crime. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer was known to decapitate the people that he killed and that he ate parts of the body, he kept body parts, he, he put them in containers. So there is that. And you have, again, a, a known serial killer living very close to that mall that was around an opportunity, had a motive, he had a chance. However, when he interviewed about that particular murder, and I'm going to quote this, Jeffrey Dahmer said... I've said everything I had to say about this. I've told you everything. How I killed them, how I cooked them, how I ate them. Why wouldn't I tell you about this one? If I did it, I'd tell you. That makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Let me call back. So I don't think, from my reading, that Dahmer did this. I think Tool did it, and... You know, part of the reason why is that he corroborated some evidence that maybe only the killer would be familiar with, right? Yeah, correct.
0: Um, there's a lot of speculation that Jeffrey Dahmer, because he's the cool guy to, to attach all these murders to, that was his MO. Young boys, young men, decapitate him, that was his thing. Um, but the fact is that they tried to the fool Tool. Law enforcement took him to the wrong mall and said, well, when you picked him up here, he immediately started this isn't the mall. This is not where I picked him up at. So that tends to lend to the idea that maybe he actually did do it, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here for one moment and say this. Well, Tool was in prison one day before he made that last confession about killing Adam Walsh. A movie had come out on television, and it was the Adam Wall story. And in that movie, it talks about exactly what mall it was, how he was taken, and all the details that that script had in it. Tool had access to that information because he was in a jail, a prison, where he had access to a TV. I can't put him in front of that TV watching it, but that, again, raises eyebrows. Who really knows what happened? No one does. If you ask me to give you my professional opinion, I think Toole did it.
1: I think he killed Adam Walsh. Well, generally, in your opinion, I don't think that you believe that he committed all the murders he confessed to, but do you have kind of a ballpark, a percentage of how many of these he actually did? Sure, we have evidence and we know that uh, what some of the murders these guys committed, specifically Tool, uh, Geraldine Peoples,
0: she came home and both Lucas and Toole were in her house and they shot her dead. How do we know this? He had their niece with them and their nephew. They were like, we look at, and so we've seen serial killers this before. One of them that comes to mind is the, the Gold State killer. He brought a dog with him. The two killers here brought their nieces with them. Had him outside while they killed this person. Brenda Butler was stabbed to death in her bathroom in Bonneville, an in, in area, as well as Ruby McCary, who sh- sh- was shot through her screen. Those are all attributed to Tool and Lucas, and they did to them. There is also... and there And there is also a very interesting robbery that was in progress at a gas station in December of 1980, it was December 15th. A man was killed. He was beaten and shot. It turns out to be that he was the father of a police officer. They were guilty of that. Deborah Quinn, Quinn, 18, uh, she, she was dumped. They found her in a, a grave site which was basically skeleton by then. So there's about eight to 10 killings of these guys that are attributed to them. So in everything I've read, everything I've seen, I would say that these guys were probably guilty of between 35 and 45 murders. I don't think they killed any more than that. I believe that at one point they believed, like Kemper, that the more they talk, the more attention they get, the more sodas they get, the more hamburgers they get, and they just keep talking because at some point, you have to understand that, they have nothing to lose. 30 killers, rapists, you know, child molesters, they're the scum of the earth. So what difference is it if it's 10, I mean, really, what difference does it make if it's 10 killings or 1,000 killings? 1,000 killings gives them more notoriety, gives them more attention. I believe these guys lied because it was convenient for them to lie. And I believe they, they bolstered up their numbers because at some point they become the most sought after and the most... Um, the most heinous of all serial killers. It's something they like, it's about ego. These guys kill for gratification, although these guys are are unorganized. They just kill as many people as they can very randomly. They're children, they're men, they're women, they're older people, it doesn't matter to them. It's a thrill for them. They They become junkies of that gratification. And with these guys right here, it's pretty obvious what they're doing. So at some point, like sighting lighting fires when they began to admit to what they did or what they didn't do they, there's a gratification to that they almost sexualized talking to law
1: enforcement well how is the relationship like this going to play out behind bars i don't know about now but back then if, if we have this information but are otis tool and john lee lucas communicating with each other are they able to see each other well, it's interesting enough, but Lucas, as you know, ended up testifying against Tools, so that wasn't, I'm sure he didn't like that. And then Lucas ended up killing
0: Tool's niece, and according to everything I've read, they hated each other at the end, because Lucas killed Toole's niece, and according to him, he killed his blood, he crossed the line. Like, killing a bunch of people and women and children it wasn't crossing the line, but that was his his whole position on this, was that Lucas killed one of my
1: kids. So, therefore, in hillbilly form, you know, I'm going to kill you until you kill one of mine. Yeah, what about, like, a different case? Like, Lawrence Bittaker, who's someone you're familiar with, was his partner Norris, like, the two of them, were they like is there an effort to separate these guys when they get busted or are they allowed to kind of fraternize with each other Well they they received two different sentences uh Bittiger received the death penalty because he was considered the leader of the
0: group and Norris actually testified against him and he received a lesser sentence and went to different prison both of them were protected in protective custody but they were never again housed together So in, in terms of Biticker that's that's how it played out. And usually, in California they separate them as men. Even the Menendez boys, who are not serial killers, when they were finally, uh, you know, arrested, tried, and convicted, they were not sent to the same prison. They were separate. Later on, they were allowed together because they're family, you know. But normally, they try to separate these guys. Even on death row, when you have two killers that are crime partners.
1: They don't put them together always. They, they put them on different locations. Yeah, well, if you ever meet someone at a soup kitchen, I would say that's probably not the guy I want to hitch my wagon to, right? Now, we're both in this scenario. Clearly, individually, we didn't make great decisions, so I don't know if us forming a team is the right strategy at this juncture. Maybe we should branch out. That's uh, That's my token thought, I guess, in closing. Yeah, and, uh, Yeah, soup kitchen isn't the, the kind of place you want to meet people. And if you're in a soup kitchen, uh, I would suggest do everything you can to get out of it. Lifestyle, uh, it's not healthy, it's not
0: good, but there are people that have, as you mentioned, mental problems, they end up in those situations and it's not a good situation. But yeah, hooking up with guys, uh, random guys at soup kitchens, uh, yeah, probably not the best uh, angle or career choice. But then again, these guys are pretty successful what they did, and they ended up paying for it with their lives because, as you know, Toole died at the age of 47 for cirrhosis of the liver, and he had a horrible death at the very end, which is defeating a
1: monster. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And Lucas died pretty young, too, so... Clearly, they uh, had a lot of regrets, I guess, to put it. Or maybe they didn't. Did they have regrets or did they regret getting caught?
0: No, I don't think they have regrets at, at all. These guys did what they did because they liked doing it. There is no redemption to these kind of individuals. As I said before, serial killers do not have redemption. They can't stop doing what they're doing. Nobody stops from age or death. But if you took their old brain and in a young body, they would do the same thing again. These guys were wired to kill. And that's exactly what they did when they were caught. And they got all, all the attention in the world. They were glowing. These guys had no regrets. Absolutely none, No conscience. Nothing. You can't have a conscience when you decide to kill a child. And these guys demonstrated that over and over again. So,
1: no. We'll be back next week. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William to Be safe.
0: Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on. Thank <laughs> you.